Welcome to another Dragonland Saga Hangout. It is Lenara's Fleur Green the Seventh. Every new month, I have a trouble getting through the name there. My name is Adam. I'd like to take a moment to thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below. You can even pick up Dragonlance Gaming materials using the affiliate links also in the description below. And of course, uh, it's Sunday. Happy Sunday. I don't know what you guys do on Sundays. I usually do yard work or I go for a hike or whatever. This morning, I had a wonderful conversation about Clive Barker's book and film, Cabal and Nightbreed, respectively, with some old friends on the Horrific Podcast. So if you guys like horror, go check that out. You can also pick up t-shirts like this, Creepy Trees, Keeping It Creepy t-shirt, I'm sporting right now. Um, Alright, so today we are going to be reading uh, Margaret Weiss's letter, Raceland to Caraman, or Margaret Weiss's Raceland's letter written to Caraman, is literally the first she's ever written about Raceland, even before Test of the Twins. There's a date on it. I wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't for Chris, so Chris, thank you very much for sending it my way. And uh, well, there you are. <laughs> Thanks, man. And um, so I grabbed the Twitter screenshot. We'll look at that. We'll actually go through and read the letters as uh, we're looking at the letters. And it's really one letter, two pages, page and a half, page and three quarters, whatever. And it'll be fun. But that's going to be in a minute because, boy, did I have a week. <laughs> did I ever have a week. Um, so the most important, like imminent news was that yesterday my we just got back from a trip to Mexico. We went down to Playa del Carmen and crawled around some Mayan cenotes or caves and a lot of Mayan structures and stuff. And it was a really great time. I didn't even get sunburnt, but I had a blast. And what I didn't realize going down there, I know a friend of mine told me about it, but I didn't believe him because I live in Utah, which is a very high elevation. Going down there, of course, is sea level. And I ended up drinking an insane amount just trying to get a buzz. Whereas here, I have two glasses of wine and I got a buzz. Or one glass of wine and I got a buzz. Down there, I was drinking like six shots of Jack, two glasses of wine. I couldn't get a damn buzz, even though I was acting like a maniac the whole time. It was, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, we get back. Our dogs were boarded at separate places. Um, uh, my neighbors had my small dog, which is a little shih tzu named Minnie. She's adorable, but she's old as hell. And my younger dog, which is a big uh, wolf-husky um, hybrid named Fenris, she, I'm sorry, that was my first dog, Freya, um, she is uh, much younger, but she's, you know, she's getting middle age for dogs anyway. Anyway, we got them both back, and for whatever reason, Freya, the big dog, decided to attack Minnie, the young dog. Small dog. Old dog, small dog. Like, really, like, bit her. Like, a tooth went into the top of her head and bottom of her um, jaw. She was, like, bleeding openly for quite some time. We ended up uh, stopping the bleeding. But, and, like, she wasn't really responding much. We were actually worried about her dying because she's so old. She's actually outlived a Shih Tzu's normal lifespan. And so we were sort of, you know, afraid of the worst. But it looks like she's sort of recovered. And so she's, you know, obviously hurt. But... She's on the other side of it, and so we've been dealing with that. On top of it, the old dog has strokes. And so usually it's when she gets really excited, she'll have a stroke. A stroke, I'm sorry. Um, uh, seizures. She'll have a seizure. Yesterday, because of all the trauma that she suffered, she had two seizures, and she wasn't doing anything but laying there. And uh, we were, like, really, really scared she was going to end up dying. But she didn't. 
she pulled through because she's an amazing little dog and we love her to death. So fingers crossed. She'll, oh, I'm getting a little stupid emotional. Fingers crossed she'll do okay. Anyway, so yeah, Playa del Carmen was great. Mexico is great as long as you're on a resort <laughs> or in one of the touring areas. We ended up doing an Octoon Chin uh, zip line tour. It was like 90 minutes in the canopy of uh, the jungle down uh, at the Riviera Maya. And then we did uh, their own little cenote cavern, which was actually filled with a whole bunch of catfish too. So not only were we looking at the great rock formations and the super crystal clear water, and we were snorkeling, and so we were like diving down. But also with all the fish, we were like flying through, or flying, we were swimming through these like schools of catfish, like sort of caressing the, their backs as they were swimming away from us. It was a great time. And then uh, we went to Tulum, which is this ancient Mayan city on the top of this hill overlooking the Grand Ocean. And it was beautiful. And then we went to their little cenote, which is uh, called Rio Secreto, uh, which is basically like a tour of like spelunking through these water-filled canyons, um, caverns, which was a great time as well. Got a bunch of photos and it's just wonderful. I don't think you guys care that much about it or else I would show some photos, but... I don't know, maybe on the website or something. So it's been, this past week has been crazy, crazy busy. I did rush out a How to Play Kaz episode, which is going to be dropping on Tuesday. I'm not really proud of it. Like I designed all the pieces for the Kaz board and they're available. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But I don't know, you know, doing these How to Plays, it's, I have to write the script and then I perform and record the script and then I record the video for it. And so it doesn't quite mesh perfectly as if I was just doing it while I was giving my script. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm not a hundred percent proud of it as I would normally be just because I feel like I was rushed trying to pump it out. Because normally I do the episodes a week in advance, but I was in Mexico, so I couldn't do the episode. So I rushed it out yesterday. So don't judge me too like strongly for it, please. It does teach you how to play the game, which is the purpose of the video. It's a lot like chess. But, I don't know. I could have done better with more time. What are you going to do? Chris, thanks for tuning in. Um, <laughs> you're like a bad penny. Jeff, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in live. We appreciate you. Uh, yeah, she is doing better. So, you know, fingers crossed she's going to recover fully. All right. So, a couple notes going forward. The gaming schedule. For those of you who have been watching the Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen campaign that I've been running... Those have been every other week, basically, from 11.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. on Saturday afternoons. That's changing. Now, it's going to be 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Saturday evenings. So, if you've been tuning in and, you know, you've been wanting to watch, this coming Saturday, not yesterday, but this coming Saturday on the 13th, we're going to do the regular time, which is 11.30 to 3.30 then the week following that, which is the 20th, we're moving to evenings. And I'm doing this so that I can do yard work in the morning. Right now, my hops plants were like super grown and sprouting their, uh, their little sprouts. And I had to trim them down and everything yesterday. And my grapevines are exploding. I haven't even trimmed those yet. I'm supposed to have done it like a month ago. I was lazy. And so I, uh, you know, you just, if you garden, it takes a lot of time working and weeding and planting and watering and you know doing everything to take care of your garden and then also we got flower beds and we have a lawn and 
So we have to tend to all that. So for the summer and spring and fall, it's a little bit more challenging for me to do Saturday afternoons, hence the time change. So just so you know, next week is normal. The week following, we're going to the evening shows. Hopefully it'll be okay. Hopefully I don't lose any players because I personally think the crew that I have right now is dope AF. <laughs> They're awesome. And I'm hoping we can uh, keep everyone together and have a really great game. And to be quite honest, the Warriors of Kryn session took so much time last game, even though I enjoy playing it. I'm not even really playing it. I'm like supervising it. Like it's, it's kind of weird. So I play the Dragon Army when in it, you know, whenever it's the battle set, uh, part of the turn. But I'm not actually like playing it. It's kind of weird. But um, it took a lot. So we didn't get a lot of role playing, but the role playing we did get in was really fun and interesting. And so this coming one, it's going to be just adventure crawling Dragonlands Classico type stuff. I'm so excited to do it. Um, maybe the live game of Putcaz would help accomplish the how-to video. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to do it because I got work. But I will do a playthrough if people want to play. I'll just need an opponent. So, Chris, you're in. All right. There's a new member level. This is the last news announcement, and then we'll get to the, the letter. The last news announcement. I reinstated the Whitestone Council. I've been sort of tossing around what benefit there would be to having multiple levels of membership. Initially, the first level of membership is just to say thanks for doing all this content because it does take a significant amount of my time, a lot of my creative juices, and to put it, that sounds almost dirty. <laughs> and to put all the content out and stuff, it takes just a significant amount of time. And so I figure 99 cents a month is enough to say, hey, thanks, you know, a little tip of your cap. And then I'll throw in live member readings now that I'm not doing the regular Dragonlance readings because I've pretty much finished everything I could read. Uh, now moving forward with the Whitestone Council, I have a lot of gaming resources that I've loaded into uh, virtual tabletops. I personally use Roll20, but whatever virtual tabletop you use. So I've got the Dragonlance board game. I've got Magestone's board game. I've got Dragonlance 5th Age uh, Fate deck. I've got Kaz board game. And then all the other stuff like the Talus card deck and everything else that I'm going to be, you know, sort of scanning in and doing like videos for, all those resources have been around since the 80s, most of them anyway. So I figure if I'm taking all the time to scan it all in, I might as well give it to members as well. So in, ultimately, I will get to Warriors of Kryn. I'm thinking about releasing Warriors of Kryn on a um, scenario basis. Because there's so many different cards and stuff that I'll just release the ones that are scenario specific each month. And so every month I'll release a new set of resources that are relevant. So for April, what did I release for April? Uh, the Fate deck, the Scandin Fate deck. For May, I released the Kaz board game, which is the actual my board that I designed and then the individual pieces so you can actually play the game on your own in a virtual tabletop with any of your friends and then for um, June I think I'm going to do Maidstones yeah I'll probably do Maidstones for June so look forward to those if you want to up your membership level or join for the first time I think it's like now man I should have looked this up I think it's like $1.99 or $2.99 or something like that a month for that and again, that's going to get you all the membership readings. Of course, just saying thank you and all the game resources every month as well. So if it's worth it to you, I welcome you. If it's not, that's okay. No big deal. 
All right. Hey, horrific podcast. I just saw this morning. How you doing, man? Um, should we get to the reading? So I saw Margaret Weiss posted this on Twitter. Joe Magnello reposted on Twitter, and then Chris sent it to me. So uh, this is Margaret Weiss saying uh, that this is a letter from Raceland to Caraman. I wrote this in January 1984 when I was at TSR. You can see from the timestamp. It was written three months before the short story Test of the Twins appeared in Dragon Magazine, um, and months before Tracy and I decided to write Autumn Twilight. I recently found this in a box in a closet. I believe she gave the original ones to Joe Maganello, and what I have, I made a PDF out of it, so I can just read it here and perform a reading for you. But this is the two pages of the actual letter. So I'm going to do this in my Raceland voice that I read all of the Dragonlance comics under, which is just my whisper voice. <laughs> so let's have some fun. Let's find out what Raceland wants to tell Karaman, because I have not read this yet. This is the first time. Monday, January 30th, 1984, 7.58 a.m. I have often believed my intelligence a curse. It was a cruel trick the gods played, imprisoning this hot and hungry spirit in a body as fragile as a charred log. They would have taught me compassion, and in part they succeeded. I have always felt the bitter sting of injustice for those too weak to fight powerful brothers for rightful share of mother's milk. But did I hurt for them? No. I pitied them, always, and it felt good to pity someone as I have known myself to be pitied. How much of this will you understand, my brother? Very little, I know. How could you understand? You, whose body is always answered to your spirit. You, who take what you want, or are given it for the asking, while I crawl through a world of tricks and illusions, duplicity and sham, amazing all beholders with a few flashy pyrotechnics. I learned, you see, long ago, how to avoid pain. Dear, good, Caraman. Dear, good, steadfast, Caraman. Dear, Good, steadfast, boring Caraman. Why have you loved me all these years? You, the only one, for our mother never loved me. Nor can I blame her. I discovered when I was five that I knew more of the world than she did. I never needed her. And we do not love those we do, who do not need us. And that is it, I suppose. That is the reason why you love me. I needed you. And I love you for the same reason. You needed me. Does that amaze you, brother dear? You needing me. Raceland, the weak one. The one always pushed to the rear of any battle while you jump forward to meet the enemy with glorious flash of sword. You need me, I repeat. You need me to need you. 
What will happen to you when I am gone? Your small flame will have nothing to feed on. Will it dim and die, I wonder? Gone? Yes, I am going. I need you no longer, Caraman. I have found that which will be both mother and brother to me. Aye, and lover too. For in that I know you pity me most. How can you understand that the decaying flesh these eyes see sickens me, yet fills me with desire? A desire to embrace death, to be one with it, and end my fear. To rule death, brother! That is what I seek, and that is what I have in my reach. And if I succeed, what then? Immortality? I am not so foolish to believe in that. How could I, knowing that a sneeze might end my days forever? No, I will have power over life and death, something those fools of dragon lords sought and could never achieve. Their gruesome, monstrous armies could snuff out a man's life, but not his spirit. Or her spirit. Ah, Lorana, I will see you always, shining star of my dark heavens. So why did I fight them? Petty, ignorant people. They did not deserve to rule. But now they will play my game. Now they will come to me. And they will pay whatever I ask. They will acknowledge me, master. And you, will you come, Keriman? With misguided loyalty, will you follow after me to save me once again? The thought flatters me. I can see you, dear, bumbling brother, battling God knows what for my sake. I can see self-sacrifice light your noble countenance. Don't do it, Caraman. I see another vision, a very pleasant one. You on your knees. The hour grows late. I tire easily, as you know. I have studied long this night, and I have reached my decision. As of now, you have no brother, Caraman. I die at birth, as I should have. Take this letter to Tannis. He will explain it to you. He understood me. That is why I feared him. I fear him. I fear no one. No longer. That's pretty awesome. That is pretty damn cool. I always thought... Here's, here's why I have a hard time believing that this was the first thing written. Because this is his letter to Karaman at the end of the trilogy. Of Chronicles. When he was literally leaving his brother after um, uh, uh, Naraka, the Temple of Nar the Naraka uh, Conclave 
fell apart and the dragon armies were all attacking each other. And like, this is him telling Karaman, peace out. And then that leads into Dragonlance Legends. That's why Karaman was so devastated because he'd lived his entire life looking after his brother, living for his brother, and now his brother cut him off. He's completely the most powerful wizard on all of Kryn at this point, Raislin Majir. He needs no one. He's paid every debt in Naraka to everyone he ever owed anything to. And now he is his own man. He is on his way to go defeat Fist and Danilus in the Legends Trilogy to become his own god. This is him at his most powerful. Which is why it bothers me that this is the first. Because that means that they plotted out the entire Chronicles trilogy before the first book was ever even written. Before Raceland's Test of High Sorcery was ever written. And how can that be when they tell us themselves, Margaret Weiss and Trace Hickman, that they only wrote the first book and it was never to even be a second or a third book. That's why they had Riverwind and uh, um, um, Goldmoon's uh, wedding at the very end of it as a sort of like wrap up of the story because TSR didn't think it was going to sell very well. They didn't expect it to anyway. And so if they had that all planned out and they only had an opportunity to do the first book, I feel like they would have planned it out better, you know? I mean, that's just my opinion. First of all, I love the Chronicles, but they are flawed. And I'm not in the, not in the sort of uh, societal, modern eyes looking back at, you know, 1980s fantasy fiction flawed. But, like, it skips over a bunch of crazy stuff. The world building was not yet complete. The modules, of course, weren't complete. And so... To think that they had these two characters and the dynamic between these two characters nailed down so well, so early, and yet everything else was just sort of up in the air, I just have a hard time believing it. Letter is about the twins. The story come later, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what it is, Goldman. How you doing, by the way? Thanks for tuning in live. It's just sort of, uh, I don't know. It feels weird to me. That's all. It just feels weird. I understand the date proves. I would be interested to see the original manuscript for Time of the Twins. I'm sorry. Um, for the Test of the Twins short story that was released in Dragon Magazine to see when it was actually written to see how far in advance they did their character work before they started writing. And to be fair, 100%, you have to do the characters first. You have to understand who the characters are, where they're going to come from, where they're going to go before you even start writing the story out. You may have story beats down, but the characters are going to help steer the course of the story. And so maybe they did have this 100% nailed down. It just seems weird that they would have this dynamic so pure and planned out and everything else was just sort of like seemingly unfleshed out at this point. I'm not a writer, so what do I know? So let's see. You're on your balcony with a whiskey a cigar? Hell yeah, dude. That sounds like a good time. That's what we did. Um, we would uh, go to dinner and then we'd go pick up a uh, Cuban, walk down to the beach, smoke a cigar, washing, uh, watching the, the waves. and the. It was almost a full moon when we were down there, just enjoying ourselves. It was a good time. Sipping on old Johnny Walker Black. You think paying back debts would involve Parsalian and paying him back for the gift of the hourglass eyes? Well, hey, Sherlock, thanks for tuning in live. 
He did. <laughs> Once he became a god, he forced uh, Parsalian to watch the fall of the gods and the fall of um, the gods of magic even. He tortured him the whole time. It was pretty awesome. It's amazing that Weiss wrote this even before Chronicles. She said in interviews that she knew that the character instantly from the artwork showing the hourglass eyes. Yeah, I find that very interesting as well. His opinions on Tannis and Lorana seem to have changed the most from this letter to the fully finished out Chronicles. I don't know. He's always thought Lorana was beautiful, and even in the Chronicles. And so I thought that was on par. I thought the fact that he respected and feared Tannis because Tannis knew him. Like, Tannis <clears throat> would talk smack on Raislin, but he always went to him for advice and help. And so they had a very interesting relationship dynamic that none of the other companions had. And I, I, so I, I do feel like that is, is, in my perspective, true to form. It'd be interesting to see what other people think about it. Let's see. Um, the letters about the twins came together later. Uh, Wise had a special connection with Raceland. You feel like she knew this whole path in her head even before she couldn't be sure she... Well, yeah. <laughs> the fact is, is that when Dragons of Mystery DL5 came out, and then later when Dragonlance Adventures DLA came out, and then later when Leaves from the End of the Last Home came out and did a sort of a culmination of all how the companions met and how Raceland got his test and stuff, she changed Raceland's story. She released the Soul Forge, which dramatically changed how Raceland got into the school with Antimides. Uh, and originally, it was his father that put him in the school. How his father and Kidiara took care of him, and then later it ended up being, no, it was just Kidiara. How he had taken his mother's psychic visions, her, her telepathy, and then uh, her, her sort of, I don't know if it was ESP, but she had psychic visions, and he had that in the early version. Later on, he never had it. So Raceland did dramatically change. His story dramatically changed from when she originally wrote him all through the Chronicles and Legends, all through the cycle of the original Dragonlance modules and everything to later when she came back to it. And she sat on that script for a while, which means she knew she was fundamentally altering his, um, his uh, trajectory and his history for a while before it was actually published. Whether that bothers you or not is one thing. But I still, I just got a, a message from someone saying, this is BS when they looked at my Raceland Majir video. They're like, that's not how it happened. This is how it happened. And I had to correct them saying, no, no, no. This is exactly how it happened originally. It was changed later. So you can complain about it if you want, but you're going to have to complain to Margaret Weiss, not me. And you can't complain much because she originally wrote him. So if she wants to change his story, it's on her, which is why I don't mind if Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman change The Legend of Huma. Um, because that was Richard Knack, not Tracy Hickman, who created Huma. And so when they, in their next book of the Dragons of Fate, are going to be dealing with Raceland, Sturm, Tasselhoff, Destina, and Magius, and Huma, like, right in the description, it says that Raceland and Sturm have to deal with the changing of the legend of Magius and Huma, and reconciling that with the reality of them. So I think they're going to do their version of Huma and Magius and not Richard Knack's version of Huma and Magius. And that's going to piss a lot of people off because a lot of people got into Dragonlance through the novel, The Legend of Huma. It's interesting. I think it's going to be fun. 
And I love that stuff. So I don't even care if they change it up. They created the character. They can do whatever they want with him. Same way, I didn't mind that Chase Hickman demanded that Lord Soth come back from Ravenloft in order to do the War of Souls trilogy. It was his character to begin with. And when James Louder took Lord Soth from Dragonlance into Ravenloft, he changed the fundamental nature of Lord Soth. And though I love that version of Lord Soth, it's not the version that Trace Hickman wrote. And it's not the version that Trace Hickman planned. And so when we finally do get to see the end of Lord Soth in the War of Souls trilogy... Oh, was it War of Souls? Or, yeah, it was War of Souls. Um, we get the Tracy Hickman version of Lord Soth. And it's interesting because different authors write these really sort of uh, fundamental characters that are so famous and sort of break boundaries of uh, fantasy IP. You know, it's, it's in the fantasy zeitgeist, zeitgeist at this point, Lord Soth and like Raceland Majir and, and Huma Dragonbane and Magius. That to see them treated in different ways and how fans react to that. Because the fans didn't make them. They just fell in love with them. So you have to just sort of tip your cap, say, all right, this is your character. You take them where we, and, and we'll just follow. And, you know, you can make a very convincing argument that they changed Tasselhoff Burfoot. Because Tasselhoff, from everything we learned before, to Tasselhoff in Dragons of Destiny is complete or dragons of deceit is completely different tasselhoff in the destina story is a completely different tasselhoff he's much more stupid naive and a sucker he was never like that before and so it is interesting to see how authors change over time how they treat characters all right, so let's see. You may be wrong and usually are, but you never got the feeling from the Chronicles that Raceland feared Tannis more than you respected him. Yeah, you're right. You're That's how I interpreted it as well. But respect can come through either admiration or fear. And um, either way, I don't care how he got it. I just appreciated that he did, in fact, respect him and his opinion and stuff. And he trusted him, too. You know, for a character like Raceland Majir, who didn't trust anyone he just assumed everyone had ulterior motives like he did a bit solipsistic to have him trust tanis in order to properly lead the companions even when tanis didn't that speaks a lot about his judgment raceland's judgment you know and it also makes you start to wonder if he was such a good judge about um tanis was he a good judge about caraman because he treated caraman like a dolt like a total idiot and what we learned about Kerman was that he wasn't. He just took his time to examine all angles. And he ended up being a brilliant general in the <clears throat> post-Dwarfgate Wars when they traveled back in time in the Legends trilogy. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting. So, let's see. Um, you think Raceland wanted people to know him early on and understand that everyone around them... <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting old. Trusted and followed Tannis. So, he was like... In the Deceit novel, you like to think Tasseloff was acting stupid because he was under the influence of Destina's love potion. It's the only way you can enjoy those sections. Yeah, yeah. But how long do those things last? You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe she, she kept, like, micro-dosing him. <laughs> love potion number nine and stuff. All right, so that is really all I wanted to talk about today. I had nothing else. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about the characters uh, and the fact that she had it fully rounded in this early little manual for the this early little letter before his 
test was ever even taken. And that's another thing that she changed was the test um, completely. Because she wrote it in Test of the Twins. Then another author took it over for the Soulforge game book. And then she took it over again for the Soulforge novel. And I think his test has never been satisfying. What do you guys think about uh, Rayson Majir's Test of High Sorcery? Or arguably any Test of High Sorcery that we've seen played through. Like we've seen um, uh, the, the mage in the comic series. I can't remember her name. But she did a test as well. They were like hunting down a renegade through time and they ended up having her test be her helping Parsalian and LaDonna as they were trying to sort of capture this renegade mage. It was a good, it was a good comic series arc, story arc too. So the early concepts, it sounded like Raceland had loved Lorana. Um, I don't know. I think he was... I think he was infatuated with her because he didn't see her aging like he saw everyone else. If you could just imagine for a second watching, it, it's like the end of um, uh, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones first film, where they open the Ark of the Covenant and all the ghosts come out and they suck the Nazis' faces into like skulls and then bones and they break apart into dust. That's what Raceland sees every single day in every face he looks at he looks at a piece of fruit and it withers and die he looks at a flower and it withers and dies he looks at faces and they wither and die that's a horrific way of living your life so to see someone who isn't actively doing that that's pure uncut clean beauty and that's what he saw in lorana when he first saw her and so i'm not surprised that he admires her you know i do think it's a little weird because he would have seen elves before because Solace is, it, it's a, it's a traveling town. Like people just go through it. You know, they come, stay at the famous in the last home, and then they move on. And so I feel like he would have seen elves before then. Rarely, I'm sure, but I don't know. He did freak out about it, which is kind of cool. Hey, Traylon, thanks for tuning in live. Yeah, Raceland's Cast could definitely be its own book. Which is why I was so disappointed in the end of Soulforge when they finally got to the test and it was just like a chapter. I was just like, oh man, come on. So you never fully liked Raceland's Test of High Sorcery because it was the most versions that sound like he was going to die if he didn't accept Fizzanos' help. So that's not really a choice. Yeah, and the reality is, is he could have done it. He just chose the easy path. Which is a weird choice to make when you're someone who is relying on... On, on his own metal, you know? I mean, the thing about Raceland is if he could, he always did things himself and he would scorn those who helped him like he scorned Karaman. So I wonder why he made the choice to give in when he could have defeated that dark elf. Was it because Fist and Dallas had a silver tongue and he convinced him? Or was it because he was just exhausted and tired and he wanted to be over? Or... Was he afraid he couldn't do it? And so he just hedged his bet? What do you guys think? Let me know in the comment. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, Karaman Majir, I love that character. I think he was underplayed until Legends. He didn't. He was presented as a sort of big oaf. You know, sort of a dummy who just likes sleeping with women, which <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but... Still, you want substance, you know, to your shenanigans. 
At least I do. More power. <laughs> Unlimited power. Oh, maybe that was it. The promise of power is why he, he turned in, uh, accepted Fisendalus's goals. And then, you know, when you think about it, he didn't know what Fisendalus was. All he knew is that he was an insanely powerful mage who was willing to help this apprentice just for a little life energy, a little vitality. And Rayson was like, I'm sick anyway, man. So you want to take a little bit of the sickness? Fine. How bad could it get? <laughs> little did he know. It got much better. <laughs> um, from that early relationship, I thought the dynamic between, which is why I'm so excited about this coming Dragons of Death, or Fate coming out in August, is so going to be good. Because I thought the dynamic between Sturm and Raceland was always awesome. Because Raceland always respected Sturm for being Sturm. For being the Knight of Salamnia, even though he wasn't. For living a code of honor that meant he had an infinitely more difficult, challenging life than it needed to be. And I think watching the devotion that Sturm Brightblade had to his code echoed Raceland's devotion to the magic, you know? Like, he would do anything for the magic, just like Sturm would do anything for his honor. And so, though they're wildly disparate in their ideas and understandings, it's kind of the same idea. Like, you are devoted to an ideal, you will fight and die for that ideal, you know, even if that ideal is magic. His line about lying to everyone but himself was epic. Yeah, exactly, man. That was so good. I did also love when, whenever you get Sturm just sort of like looking away, he's like, ah, oh, you guys, all right, do your thing. I'll just <laughs> pretend it didn't happen. I really love the story about um, when they were kids and Sturm and Raceland were working together to like foil. So it was very Scooby-Doo-ish, but to foil local robbers. I thought that was a fun little story too. Kind of cool. Let's see. Uh, getting more scenes with Raceland and Sturm together is worth buying the book alone. Hell yeah. Especially when they're going to do that Scooby-Doo like double take that. <laughs> Once they see their heroes and the reality of their heroes. I mean, in almost every case, you meet your heroes, you're going to be disappointed because you put people on pedestals. Remember, Uma was just a dude. He was a knight of the crown that no one really liked. He just happened to be the most honorable and the most straightforward and hence fell in love with a dragon, was given an option of saving the world with a dragon lance or going and marrying his girl, the dragon. And he chose the difficult life of living the ideal and burning out and dying young. And you got to respect that, you know? Even though none of the other knights would have made that same choice. And then Magius was just a power-hungry nut job. This guy didn't care about orders of high sorcery. He wore every robe, even brown and gray, for um, being a renegade. And he, like, sided with, um, oh, what was the name? It was Draconis? The bad guy in Legend of Huma. Oh, it's escaping my mind right now, but whatever his name was, like he, he sided with them and learned under them because he wanted more power. 
just like Raceland. So I wonder if they're going to use Magus as a sort of like a like a tease for Raceland, who at this time is a red robe mage, you know, a neutral mage, as like Raceland is going to like imprint on his own psyche what Magus is like. Because if Magus is power hungry, which he was, and he would do anything to gather more power, more magic, that's what Raceland ended up doing. What if they sort of rewrite Raceland's story of being influenced by Magius? And that's why he chose Fiss and Danilus's offer in the Tower of High Sorcery when he was taking his test of high sorcery. Because he wanted more power. And now he has a reason because he saw it already happen. No, because that's his after that. Damn it. I'm ruining my own timeline in my head canon here. Hmm. Hmm. So you just thought of this. You wonder if the gods of good gave Soth the opportunity to save the world from the cataclysm because Huma's example might have chose otherwise if not for Huma. You wonder if the gods of good gave Soth the opportunity to save the world from the cataclysm because of Huma's example. Um, interesting. I mean, they like... <laughs> Gold Moon. <laughs> Noobs like Pegasus rats. Um, they gave a bunch of people opportunities to help with the cataclysm, and every one of them <laughs> failed. So, I don't know. Well, maybe. I mean, Paladine was... First of all, I have a hard time, like, comparing Soth and Huma. Soth was a devoted true knight. I'm sorry, Huma was a devoted true knight. Soth was always a bad knight. Like, he was always cutting corners and, you know, going his own way. And, like, he was never, like, the pinnacle of what the knighthood was supposed to be. He always, you know, he fooled around on his wife, murdered his wife, fooled around on, uh, well, he didn't fool around on his second wife, but um, ended up watching his second wife burn because of jealousy. Like, he was not a good dude. So for Paladine to go to him and be like, look, Huma Dragonbane was like a pinnacle of what knighthood was. You're a scumbag. How about you go save the world? I feel like he was setting the world up for a failure. That's a bad choice on Paladine's part. Doesn't make sense. Though, if you would have gone to a good knight and been like, hey, you want to, you know, save the world or you want to, I don't know, marry the pretty girl? <laughs> Make a choice and then, uh, you know, go kill the king priest for me. <laughs> but that was the choice that Lord Soth had, right? It wasn't to defeat the king priest and then go home in victory. It was to defeat him over and over and over again and be murdered by the king priest over and over and over again until he stopped the king priest ultimately until the king priest learned of his own ways error of his own ways so what kind of a choice is that for soth to make he's like i can either in his mind live in nightland and just sort of have a great life or i could redeem myself by dying over and over and over again for you like i would I would probably choose the house in Nightland too. <laughs> but I'm not a good guy. So what are you going to do? All right, let's see. Definitely Chronicles. That's the original Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, you think you're going to be hard on Soth. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, he definitely wasn't perfect. 
I love the character. I think he's a great bad guy. We need good bad guys, like effective, strong, powerful bad guys. You compare that Death Knight to like the War of Souls, uh, um, not the War of Souls, but um, uh, the uh, Sweet Hell, Mina's trilogy, Dark Disciple trilogy, where she had the Death Knight um, Krell, Osric Krell. He was a douchebag of a Death Knight. Just the biggest sniveling coward of a punk ass. So frustrating <laughs> to see him have the powers of a Death Knight. Are Dragonlance gods similar to the Greek gods, capricious and flawed, unlike omnipotent ones? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think they took um, cues from the pantheon of Greek gods in this. Uh, Trace Hickman did. And it's interesting, like, you, there's, um, in the annotated chronicles, they, there's a whole essay in the back end of it which talks about the creation of the gods and the pantheon. It wasn't even Trace Hickman's. It was, um, I think it was Howard Johnson's, if memory serves it, but it was someone else. Anyway, it was their own homebrew game version of gods, and then Trace Hickman just sort of adopted them into Dragonlance and used them from the very beginning, the manifesto that he created for Dragonlance to pitch to the, the, the owners of TSR, the creative minds behind the, the games. So it's interesting. And I, you know, with Dragonlance, that's really what makes Dragonlance different than one of the things that makes Dragonlance really different than all the other worlds is that the gods play an active role in the world. And you can make the argument that, yeah, they always do because they provide magic spells or divine spells or, or whatever, but they actually get involved. Like, Fizban is the avatar of Paladine, the god. And he is directing people, providing opportunity for them to become heroes throughout all of history. He's intimately involved in that. And Tachesis is literally walking the earth, um, you know, waking up dragons and creating priests out of Verminard as an example and creating emperors out of Arikin as an example. And like she is, she's heavily involved in getting people to do her bidding, which is way different than other gods in other settings because there's sort of these omnipotent beings that just exist in their own planes of existence and mortals just, you know, they're in the prime material plane doing their own machinations and whatever. Non-Dragonlands, not in Dragonlands. So let's see, uh, Trail and Soth's inclusion in the Shadow of the Dragon Queen has given you super high hopes, so much potential to be a great villain. Yeah, I loved that first exposure to Soth through Caradoc. Um, in, uh, this is a spoiler for people who haven't watched my playthrough of Shadow of the Dragon Queen. But it was, I love seeing Caradoc and how Caradoc acted and then what Soth did and having the players discover his story through the cataclysmic fire and, and knowing what happens next with Soth and the storyline and stuff. And, and I'm excited to have the players uncover that story because it's pretty cool. And it, it, in my opinion, it doesn't really break canon as egregiously as taking Lord Soth out of Dragonlance did, but it still does fundamentally change Dragonlance because as soon as, I mean... Let's be fair. Between Chronicles and Lost Chronicles, which was supposed to fill in the gaps, there were huge disparities between Lord Soth, Kidiar, and Ariakin. Like, 
in Dragons of the High Lord Skies, which is the Lost Chronicles, which was written decades after the original Chronicles was written, Arikin knew about Lord Soth, but in Dragons of Spring Dawning, when he went to uh, Derigard Keep in order to confront Kidiara and basically kill her, he was stopped by Lord Soth and he was terrified. He's like, whoa, you got Lord Soth. Ah! So it, it's like he already knew that in the book that was before that scene happened. If you want to go in order of events rather than order of books written. So the, the authors have really been willy-nilly with timelines, with characters, and throughout their whole history. So you can't really expect consistency in Dragonlance because it's never been there. Ever. Uh, it's funny to see the Dark Disciples trilogy to see lesser gods fight for power after Paladin and Tachesis are out of the picture. I don't know about them. I mean, they're, they're literally lesser, I suppose. Some of them are. Um, but, like, Sargana's, he's earned it, man. He's totally earned his chance in the sun. Kemish has earned it. He, he, he has been working his tail off to get semblance of power. And so I really like seeing the gods vie for control and power over each other through the mortals on Kryn and stuff. I think that's really fun to, to watch. It gives it a different dynamic, you know what I mean? Um... Let's see, is there time at some point to do a quick recap video of the Shadow of the Dragon Queen story so far for fans who may be finding it now or may be intimidated by watching all the back episodes? Huh, that's an interesting idea. I had not considered. What would be the breaking point? This, I think, would be the breaking point. Like the, this, because this is like the first. We've, we've traveled from Vogler to Calaman, and now we're leaving Calaman. So maybe the story up until this point where the characters have left Calaman is a good recap moment because the story gets infinitely bigger from here on. So yeah, that might be interesting. I don't know. I do the, um, the uh, last time on Shadow of the Dragon Queen synopsis of the previous game before we start playing a new game session. I wonder if I just collect all those and then sort of go through and rehash or maybe I can get everyone together all the players and the players can rehash the story thus far from their perspectives you know just sort of do like round robin like all right you start what was your experience you know how did your what happened to your character with the story and then we move over to the next character and they just continue it you know sort of uh, in a circle that might be fun too because then you get the character's perception like you do in the novels rather than the game master's sort of, you know, thousand foot story version of it. That'd be kind of fun. Hey, Desert Trance, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. Should novelize a series when it's done. That would be fun. That'd be really fun. But I'd love to get, again, the player's perspectives as we're doing it. Because like your experience, Colin, um, Horrific Podcast, uh, he plays uh, Tobril, is it? I, th I can't remember your character's name. I'm sorry. To Torben or something? Anyway, he plays a, a, a neater dwarf cleric of Reorks. And his character has a long history of, you know, just traveling and, and healing and stuff. And he was sort of thrown in to this crazy scenario of things happening a lot more aggressively than the other players did with their characters. 
what age did you first play a proper campaign? Well, that defining thing, proper campaign, um, is the the linchpin of that question there. Because I played campaigns as a kid all the time. It's a good question. A proper campaign. I'm trying to think all the ones we did. Because we would do a campaign or adventures, three or four adventures, and then we'd make new characters and do different style of adventures. And then we'd let someone else DM, and then I would play. And So the first proper campaign, I think maybe, maybe when I was like, I don't know, 19, 20, 18, 19, I think, probably. I maybe record each character's account, then they could release as a series. That would be cool, too. What about Torgan? That's it, thank you. Is it Torgan or Tongan? Tongan. Prawn animal. All right. Um, you know what would be cool is if we could find someone to animate. You know, it doesn't have to be like Legend of Vox Machina on Amazon Prime animation, but just like rough animation of events and stuff. Like when I was a little kid on public access TV, they would have story time. And so I'd be, you know, little child Adam watching TV and there'd be like Shelley Duvall telling a story and then someone would be like doing chalk drawings of the story. You know, it wouldn't be complete. It would just be like little, you know, impressionistic style drawings. It'd be kind of cool to do something like that with these experiences, with these uh, characters stuff. I think that'd be fun. You have a seven-year-old and you're wondering how he would do. Oh, first of all, I children have infinitely better imaginations. I th Not all children, but in general, they have better imaginations than any adult. So the earlier you start flexing that muscle, you force them to flex that muscle by telling stories, by imagining things, um, I think it's better. And, and role-playing is one of those things that it, in, it informs the rest of your life because basically all it is is improv. If you know how to improv, you're going to be a better conversationalist. You're going to be a better actor. You're going to be a better, um, a, just generally, person to be around because you're, you're going to have perspective because you've spent all that time role-playing other characters' thoughts and actions, other people's motivations, not your own. And so it gives you an, a perception of how other people think and feel. And that's a really healthy place to be as a human being because then you're not just hyper-focused on you and everything's me, me, me. No, you understand different people a little bit better when you've been in their shoes, even if it's role-playing shoes. And that's why I think it's really, really important to, to really stretch those imagination muscles in kids early, early on. Because it doesn't have to be super mechanical gamey you know, like crunchy game type stuff. You could just do verbal stuff. Or you could read a game book and have them make the choices and ask them why they made the choice. You know, maybe it's just because, well, I, I wanted to see the skull or, you know, I wanted to open the trash and get treasure or, you know, whatever the reason. But at, at least they're thinking about it. And then the older they get, the more detailed those thoughts are going to become and the more deep that muscle builds. It's going to be interesting, I think. So yeah, at the moment, you're more than a bit confused. You're more of a confused bofer. <laughs> Dragon, that's his examples of both, but since it's more common, interesting to get Adam's thoughts on that. Both what? You're actually struggling with your character. Are dwarf clerics usually stoic or comical? When you think of dwarves, Gimli, son of Glowin, is always your go-to. 
that's a good dwarf to use as a um like with every character you know we were just talking about this on your podcast they're not a monolith every race and um class um i think it's interesting to sort of take generic concepts and then refine them to add quirks you know what i mean so generally dwarves are a bit more earthen stoic and you know sort of proud crafting type people who are devoted to one singular god reorks who has gifted them and um you know given them direction and and uh favor over all other gods but then you start adding on flamboyance of dress and mannerisms and style of of speech pattern and you know you can really sort of dive into it like if you look at dugan redhammer who is the avatar of reorks he's a flamboyant gambling addict like he's a degenerate gambler um he drinks way too much but he gambles at every opportunity he can and he's always dressed in the finest silks and wide brimmed hats with feathers and like he's just the most crazy character ever and he's a god Flint Fireforge, on the other hand, is like grumpy. These kids are always getting into trouble. I have to bail them out and they're dragging me on these adventures. But he's also an incredibly insightful and caring and loving grandfather type character of these kids he's bitching about. And he's best friends with the character that he talks the most shit about, Tasselhoff Burfoot. <laughs> I mean, he waited for him after he died so that they could go into the afterlife together. That's how much he loved this character uh, or this person. So, you know, just, I, I like what you're doing with your character, Colin, um, because it's a little bit different than the dwarves that we're typically used to. You're, you have a much more even tone about your play. And especially in the group dynamic that we have, where we have a little bit of crazy, a little bit of frustration and a little bit of chaos you are a nice even tone in that sort of mess of a party that we've got and not in a bad way when i say mess i just mean you know colorful i guess is another way of saying it um yeah i totally agree with you it's a super important muscle to have flint the angry old man for sure um all right well we've chatted for an hour that's kind of all i had for today i just wanted to go over that letter and just sort of riff a little bit on the characters because it's fun chris's new character trait is that he talks to his acts as epic yeah yeah i like that a lot too it was uh, it was a good time all right anyway i'm looking forward to next saturday's game i hope you guys are too it's going to be a lot of fun we're going to meet some exciting new characters that are important later on in life um, and that's going to be really cool to see them before they were that person. Um, we're going to go to some really dangerous places and we're going to do some dungeon crawls. We might even go to another plane of existence. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy shit that's going to be coming up. So I hope you guys tune in this coming Saturday. We're not going to do a Warriors of Kryn session, but the one after that, the 20th, we will start with a Warriors of Kryn uh, game session. I want next week to be just role playing and adventuring crawling around exploring new areas and having a good time learning about Kryn in this part of the world and it's going to be filled with Kryn lore i can't wait it's gonna be so much fun just finished dragons door and depths Ooh, that's a good one desert trance i like that book all right 
Thank you all so much for tuning in. That is going to do it uh, for this hangout today. What did you think of this old school Dragonlance literature? Does it hold up after all these years? Feel free to email me in the comments. Um, email me at info at dlsaga.com or comment below. If you joined in live, thank you guys so much for your time and attention. I really do appreciate it. It makes this a lot more entertaining for me and hopefully for other people. If you're watching this after the fact, consider tuning in live next time. I'd always appreciate it and you're welcome. I don't care if you agree with me or not. You're always welcome here if you want to talk fantasy and Dragonlance. We love it all. Uh, Traylon, thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you. Um, all right. I'd like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring that bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click that stupid like button. It all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. This channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga. Thank you for joining in the celebration. This has been Adam. Until next time, Slanjavar.